On this week's Afterwards podcast, writer and podcaster Coleman Hughes argues that the U.S. should move towards a colorblind approach to politics and race. He's interviewed by the Atlantic staff writer and author Thomas Chatterton Williams. This is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team. If you read nonfiction books and thought-provoking discussions with authors spark your interest, you'll find the Book TV newsletter a valuable learning resource for staying informed. Hi, John here, one of the producers at Book TV. Think of the Book TV newsletter as your weekly literary update, your source for advance notice of program highlights, featured book festivals, and in-depth profiles of nonfiction authors. Explore the Book TV newsletter to organize your viewing and ensure you never miss a significant literary event. Be a Book TV insider with our weekly newsletter because Book TV is television for serious readers like you. Subscribe today at cspan.org/connect. That's cspan.org/connect. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Can you lay out what you mean by the colorblind principle? Yes, so there's been a lot of confusion about what the word colorblindness means. Many people think that colorblindness means pretending you don't see. So in my book, I try to get rid of that misperception because we all see race. Everyone sees race, you can't help it. Everyone watching this notices that uh, I am of color and, and so forth. So with the knowledge that we can all see race, we're all capable of racial bias. What I mean by colorblindness in the book is that we try our best to treat people without regard to race, both in our personal lives, the less controversial piece, and in our public policy. That's what I mean by colorblindness. One of the reasons the notion of colorblindness has become so controversial seems to be rooted in what is broadly understood as anti-racism, which you also define as neo-racism. You discuss two of the most high-profile propon- proponents of that ideology, uh, Robin DiAngelo and Ibram X. Kendi. What is anti-racism or neo-racism, and how did it become so influential? So what is... Today called anti-racism, what I call neo-racism in the book, is an ideology that came out of well-intentioned desire to fix and address the legacy of slavery, the legacy of Jim Crow, the persistent racial disparity in the country. And uh, starting really in the 60s and 70s and then Continuing on into the 80s, there was a group of scholars that came up with something called critical race theory, which has been much in the news the past few years, but which was originally a conscious effort to redirect the civil rights movement, to reject the rhetoric of Martin Luther King, Bayard Rustin, and other traditional civil rights heroes, and to say that actually they didn't go far enough and they should have put race on the front burner. What happened is that ideology percolated inside the academy for a few decades. And then just in the past decade, starting around 2013, those ideas that had been essentially dormant in certain corners of academia um, really spread throughout society and have had vocal exponents such as uh, Ibram X. Kendi and 
Robin D'Angelo, who say that uh, rather than strive for a colorblind society, rather than strive for a society where someone's race doesn't mean anything at all and recognize that race is only skin deep, we should strive for a society where everyone reflects deeply on their racial identity. We teach kids at a young age that their race is the most important aspect of who they are. We put in racial categories into every piece of public policy. Uh, and every public policy, including emergency situations like COVID, should be viewed through the lens of reducing racial disparities instead of treating people that need the treatment the most on a race-blind basis. And so uh, you've seen in the, in the last decade that what was once a pretty fringe idea has become mainstream and has been shorned into a lot of uh, Democrat policy, even if the majority of Democrat voters don't necessarily subscribe to this ideology. I, I've thought about this a lot, and a lot of other writers have also tried to make sense of it. Uh, there are so many um, hypotheses for why um, so many changes in, in our national discourse about race and identity started to emerge uh, around the time frame that you also identify, around 2013 or, or the late Obama era. What, what do you think it is in the past decade and change that really was so transformative? And why did these ideas that, uh, you know, you say have been around uh, for decades and they have been around for decades, why did they, why were they able to gain such purchase all of a sudden at this moment? So if you turn the clock back to 2012, what you find from all the polls that most Americans, black and white, believe that race relations were good. That fact may be shocking given what race relations have felt like over the past 10 years, but the first Obama term was a high point for U.S. race relations. The majority of, of both white and blacks agreed. You look at the data and something happened around 2013 and it just began to nosedive so that by 2021, about half of the people that thought race relations were good in 2012 and 13 said the same in 2021. So the question is, what happened? People like to, Republicans like to blame Obama and Democrats like to blame President Trump, but neither of those explanations actually make sense of the data. The only explanation that makes sense is that 2012 and 13 was around the time where a critical mass of Americans started, instead of getting their news from the six o'clock news, from newspapers and so forth, started getting their news from social media. Uh, and then the second thing that happened is that 2013 was around the time where everyone uh, had a smartphone with, with a camera on it. So you combine those two things. Everyone is now a journalist and can pick up any piece of video, any altercation that happens in the street, and then they can instantly post it to social media where it can get millions of views in a matter of hours. Those two things fundamentally change the way that people receive information. So let's say it's the year 2005 and there's a police citizen interaction that goes sideways, as they sometimes do. And the, the officer happens to be white, the arrestee happens to be black. How do you learn about that? Well, a journalist comes to the scene, uh, gets a statement from each party, and maybe it ends up on the local six o'clock news at most. You fast forward to 2013, what happens is somebody pulls out their phone 
takes a 30-second clip of that interaction, which may be out of context, may leave out the five minutes leading up to it, instantly post it to Facebook, where it gets millions of views before any journalists have had time to explain the context of the interaction and explain actually what happened. Often clips can be misleading, but now it's gone viral. It's been fed into a social media algorithm that preferentially feeds that information to the people who will be most upset by it. And mm. you just filter all of reality through those two things, smartphone-enabled cameras and social media, and what you get is a population that suddenly believes that there is a spike in racism, even though racism has actually been on a steady decline for decades. Now, there's one response to this people often have, which is, isn't it that social media just showed us all the racism that was actually out there? So that's a reasonable hypothesis, but it turns out that that's not true. And the reason we know that's not true is because surveys of people show that the public is deeply misinformed and far too pessimistic about the reality of race relations. So for example, one survey found that very liberal Americans believed that 1,000 unarmed black Americans were shot dead by the cops every year. The year that survey was taken, the true number was 12. So people were off by a factor wow. not of 10, but by a factor of 100. So if social media were giving us a more accurate perception of our country, you would expect people to have an accurate perception of the country. What's, what's true is that social media is miseducating. It's making us feel that these problems are far bigger than they are. And that is what accounts for the fact that the past 10 years have been a period of declining race relations. What's a plausible uh, response to that since social media has so powerfully permeated all of our lives and is also creating this distortion effect and many others besides? What kind of, what, what do you do in the face of such a torrent of, uh, of distortion? It's a very good question. I would like to say that our culture needs to adapt and develop some kind of literacy to deal with the social media era. Um, in other words, we have to learn to be less reactive to videos mm -hmm. and we have to rewire our algorithms to not show us the most upsetting possible content. On the other hand, that's very difficult to achieve because all of the incentives of social media company uh, to get us to click um, to sell advertisement is, is to show us the most shocking and unrepresentative slices of reality and present that as if it's everything. So uh, it's a very vexing problem. I think it's possible that this is just one of the huge technological transformations and it's going to have ripple effects. Uh, the, the television had ripple effects. Uh, it, there, there's no doubt that the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War would have uh, been received very differently by the public had there been no television. Um, it's probably mm -hmm. true that the, the printing press in Europe uh, caused all kinds of destabilizations and ripple effects short run. So I don't know what, what, what is in store for us, but we have to, have to be honest about how social media is not educating us, but miseducating.
There's a paradox to much anti-racism that seems a lot like what uh, the writer Rob Henderson has termed luxury luxury beliefs. Uh, the policies uh, they advocate for often end up harming the very communities on behalf of whom they advocate. The movement to defund and abolish the police, for example, after the summer of 2020 comes to mind. Um, can you expand on that paradox uh, you do in the book? And it's, 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 it's quite compelling. Yeah, so you give a great example. If you go back to the summer of 2020, after George Floyd died and there were protests all around the world and riots in every major American city, and you just went up to, to ask someone on the street who, say, reads the New York Times or the Atlantic and considers themselves to be informed, said, what percentage of black people do you think want less police presence? They would have given you some answer that was probably the majority, right? Gallup did a poll at that very time and found that only about 20% of black people wanted less police, 20% of black people wanted more police, and 60% of black people wanted the same police presence in their own neighborhood. Um, and so that left about one-fifth of black Americans agreeing with the Black Lives Matter perspective that the police need to be shrunk and, and defanged, making it a minority viewpoint within the black community. Now that's not surprising because uh, black communities are overrepresented in terms of those who both perpetrate, but more importantly, in this case, suffer crime, so that the majority of black citizens who have no involvement in criminal activity are still more likely to suffer from it and therefore need the police more than anyone. So. Um, what ended up happening is because so many places defunded the police and the police in general were so demoralized and suffered mass retirement, America had, uh, from between 2020 and 2021, the greatest single year-over-year -year increase in homicide in recent American history. I think the Pew Research Center said it was probably the greatest single-year increase in homicide in a century. That didn't happen in any of our peer countries. The reason it happened is because there was a massive anti-police movement that premised its argument on the fact that black Americans are demanding, which was false at the time and known to be false. So uh, it's, it is strange that the movement which bills itself as anti-racist, uh, which will quite often say things like, we need to listen to people of color, in, in the, most, the most important instance of that in the past few years, actually ignored the majority opinion of the black community, went ahead with a policy that hurt no community more than the black community. Yeah, one of the, the, one of the most prominent examples of that was actually in Minneapolis after the death of George Floyd when um, homicides and shootings uh, spiked and the black community was was begging for for more right. policing. Um, yeah, um, there can be an odd symmetry between racism and anti-racism or, or neo-racism, as you put it. Um, I had the experience uh, at a conference recently of being sorted into a so-called affinity group uh, to facilitate discussion. The woman in charge couldn't understand uh, how, as the son of a black man raised in the segregated South, this was such a regressive practice in my view. But what are we to, to, to make of these, these 
um, neo-segregated, these practices of neo-segregation that are implemented in schools and other, uh, and other institutions as well. Yeah, so when I did my orientation at Columbia University in 2015, they had a similar, uh, similar kind of practice where they would put us in a room and say, black people go in that corner, white kids go in that corner, Asian kids go in this corner, Hispanic kids go in this corner. Uh, and you know, the first problem is, do I choose black or Hispanic since I'm both? But once you get past that, you just have the odd feeling, at least I had the odd feeling, that rather than connect with these kids who I'm going to try to be friends with for the next four years on the basis of my interest, at that time I was into music, I was into philosophy, I was into science, and I wanted to kid connect with other students that were into those things. Now I, I'm afraid that everyone is going to see me and the first thought that they will have is, oh, that's a black kid, right? And that becomes a, a perception that prevents them from seeing you simply as an individual, right? I wanted them to see me as Coleman, the kid that was into music, philosophy, and whatever else I was into, not as the kid standing in the, in the in the black corner of the room, and then you know uh, uh, them perceive themselves as as racialized as well. I don't think kids need any further encouragement to tribalism. Tribalism is unfortunately a part of human nature, and I do not think that in in a multiracial democracy, uh, really the world's first experiment in multiracial democracy country that has had the most open immigration policy uh, of, of almost any of our peer nations for most of its existence, that we need to tell people that their identities are deeply linked to their races. I think this is a recipe for disaster. What we should be doing instead is telling kids that you are who you are as an individual. Yes, there may be some racists out there, but at the end of the day, you should identify with the skills and values that you have as an individual. You should never judge anyone else on the basis of their skin color. And uh, to, to cordon off people into their kind of racial corners the way that colleges are doing now in the name of lessening racism is actually not a very good thing for racial harmony, right? You're actually encouraging kids themselves and others primarily through the lens of race where they may not have come in to the college experience with that attitude. So I, I think that's, this is, go ahead. Well, I was gonna say that's precisely it, isn't it? There's even been research and anecdotal evidence that uh, it actually is counterproductive and heightens uh, specifically white people's sense of their own whiteness and, and inadvertently leads to um, you know, notions of white supremacy because people can't fixate on their identity and forever feel uh, it's a source of inferiority. Yeah, I, I want to make one other point here. This is a very important difference between my philosophy and the philosophy of many people in what I would call the neo-racist camp. I don't believe that kids are born racist. I actually think the vast majority of kids, though, though kids have many problems, kids are often selfish, for example, and have to be taught to share. That's a very common experience for parents. Uh, children are not born caring about racial identity. 
That's not one of the problems mm -hmm. that children tend to have uh, unless they are taught to do so by adults. So I think the, 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 the promise, uh, the, the hope that, that we have as a country is that each new generation of kids is uh, um, there, the potential for us to raise them the right way presents itself each generation. And if we have more and more kids uh, being born in, in, in situations where they are meeting kids of different races, being friends of kids with different races, as I did when I grew up, I had friends of every race, and I did not think of them having a race, right? I thought of them as individuals, thought of them by their name. Uh, because we have that opportunity with each generation, what we have to do is not poison. We have to preserve that racial innocence as long as possible because that really is the right attitude towards race. Kids are born with the right attitude, more or less, and it's adults that poison them. Whereas the neo-racists want to say, actually, white kids are born racist and they need to be educated out of it from as early age possible as possible. And this is why you see, for example, just this week, um, you have a uh, uh, San Francisco Chronicle reporting that uh, a, a school there spent a quarter of a million dollars on a program called Woke Kindergarten, which rather than teach literacy and math to these kids, the majority of whom are English second language, Hispanic kids, they instead teach them to disrupt white supremacy, right? As the students uh, slide back on English reading proficiency and, and math scores. This is not necessary. It's a totally a false emphasis. And it's actually back, it gets, it gets the problem exactly backwards. The problem is not that kids are born with the wrong attitude on race and we have to hammer it out of them at age five. Uh, the problem is that kids are born the right way we, as a society, as adults, are hammering the wrong ideas into them. You recount the death of Tony Timpa and other white victims of police brutality to make the case that a commitment to universal principles, such as police should not brutalize unarmed civilians, would also make Black Americans safer as well. You write, had Tony Timpa's death received more attention and outrage, there's a decent chance that George Floyd would still be alive today. Can you elaborate on what you mean there? Yeah, Tony Timpa um, was someone who tragically died in, in police custody, and it was caught on camera. The reason I brought it up is because it was very similar to the way in which George Floyd died. He had a knee, uh, Timpa had a knee on his back for some 13 minutes, and Actually, worse than in the case of George Floyd, the officers were cracking jokes about how he was losing consciousness as it was happening. Um, and anyone can go on YouTube and type in Tony Timpa and watch this. Curious. Now, that video was uh, open for the world to see before George Floyd ever got into the altercation, altercation with uh, officers in Minneapolis. Had people been more upset by that, had it been a national news story at all, it's quite possible that the kind of maximal restraint technique whereby you put a knee on the top of someone's back or neck for so long might have been banned, the way that it was banned in many places after George Floyd. 
And had it been banned, it's possible that George Floyd uh, would have survived that altercation and uh, would have had his life. Now, why didn't anyone care about Tony Timpa? The story was no worse and the video was no worse than the George Floyd video. The reason no one cared is because Tony Timpa happened to have white skin and the sight of, uh, of someone with white skin um, having an interaction like that with, with the police is not as upsetting to most Americans as it is uh, when the person is black. Now you can understand that double standard because of American history because people, myself included, um, we grow up knowing about the history of slavery and Jim Crow and seeing videos of black civil rights protesters, peaceful protesters being hosed down in the South and that creates a certain a template in our mind that causes us to respond differently. But we should really reflect on whether this is a healthy template to have for the rest of time. Is it a healthy situation where you have a white guy killed by the, by, by the cops in the same way that a black guy is killed? And when the white guy is killed, it's not even a national news story, but when the black guy is killed, uh, the entire world goes to protest. I'm not sure that this is healthy for either white Americans or black Americans. I think that we have to interrogate this template and ask uh, what kind of people do we want to be going forward? Do we want to be a people that enshrines and doubles down on viewing people differently because of their race? Or do we want to cultivate attitude that your race does not matter? Your race is not who you are. Your race should not influence whether I judge the harms done to you as worse or better than if they had been done to anyone else. It, it seems to me also that there's space for a more genuine kind of solidarity too, if we didn't solely view um, atrocities or abuses through the lens of identity, but looked at, um, uh, you know, it looked at them in a broader way. You know, it wasn't just that George Floyd um, was killed as a black man, he was a very poor black man and the situation that he was in was a result of that kind of economic insecurity. I imagine Tony Timpa and the majority of the other white victims that you cite are also um, gonna be poorer or working class white Americans. And it seems that we, we, we actually um, miss out on chances uh, for solidarity by erecting these, uh, these divisions based on uh, on physical characteristics that might not even be the heart of the matter at hand. Yeah, that's a great point. In my book, I argue that I'm not at all against policies that are meant to, uh, to help people, to help people that are the unluckiest in our society. Mm -hmm. But uh, like Martin Luther King expounded in his book, Why We Can't Wait, I think the way those policies should be implemented are on the basis of class, socioeconomic, poverty, rather than on the basis of race. Um, to have a real conversation about the spectrum of disadvantage in this country, where there is so much wealth and so much poverty, I think we have to acknowledge at this point that poverty, however you'd like to measure it, whether that's wealth, income, or some combination smart measure, uh, that is really the crux of what distinguishes people with privilege and, and people without it. This, 
this country. At least it does, it, it delineates that difference much better than race does at this point. So that's not to say that there are no differences between groups in terms of poverty. In fact, any, any policy targeted at helping the poor, by definition, is going to over-index on helping black Americans because black people are more likely to be poor. Hispanics are more likely to be poor um, than white Americans. But at least you are therefore targeting the people who most need it. So I really have very little, op I have no opposition to any evidence-based policy um, that provably helps the poor on the basis of poverty. My opposition is to policies that use race as a replacement or a proxy for socioeconomic, because it just isn't good one at this point in American history. Well, why is that such a, you know, why, that's certainly the case, but why is it so much easier or more attractive for institutions, not just um, corporations or universities, but essentially all uh, cultural institutions? Why is it so much easier to use race as a proxy for class rather than to simply address um, what you aptly termed, you know, the, 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 the problems and obstacles facing the most unlucky among us, uh, regardless of ethnic ancestry. Well, race is visible and class is not. So if you're, if you're a company and you want to show the world that your, your company is devoted to, um, correcting the imbalances in society, paying attention to the class background of your employees isn't going to send that signal. No one will be able to see that. Mm. But if you, if you consider race to be equal to class, then people will be able to see just by looking at your employees that you're a company that cares. So it, it works better from the point of view of optics to use something that can be seen. That makes, that does make a lot of sense to me. Uh, so it's a, it's a cosmetic kind of fix, but it also ends up uh, fostering um, uh, a lack of genuine uh, uh, viewpoint diversity in many of these institutions at the same time. Um, one major objection to the anti-racist or neo-racist ideology that seems especially persuasive to me is that it relies to an uncomfortable degree on the distorting lens of what we can call presentism or the reflex of seeing all past behavior, policies, and practices through the biases and priorities of the contemporary era. You identify the New York Times Magazine's landmark 1619 Project special issue as one example of this, which puts slavery at the very center of American life, uh, both past and present. What do you object to in the way the 1619 Project was handled um, and, and how it uh, perhaps flattened such a complicated history for mainstream readership? Well, besides the fact that it pushed the falsehood that um, 13 colonies revolted against the British in order to preserve slavery, which one of its own fact-checkers fact said wasn't true, uh, but over her objections, they ran with that anyway. Uh, the larger problem, I think, with how slavery is taught in places like the 1619 Project in general is that it's not taught from a worldwide perspective. Uh, this is a point that Thomas Sowell made. It's a point that many others have made. When we learn about war, we don't learn only about the wars that America participated. 
No one comes away from school thinking that America is the only country that has ever gone to war. But people actually do exit senior year genuinely thinking that America is the only country that ever had slavery. They don't know that, for, for instance, the, the great majority of slaves that were brought to America were not captured by European slavers. They were captured by African and already enslaved, nearly sold to Europeans by other African tribes, such as the Dahomey tribe that was in the recent Hollywood film, The Woman King. The Dahomey tribe was one of the most prolific enslavers of other Africans. Uh, of course, the movie didn't exactly include that part, or rather, <laughs> rather uh, downplayed it. But, uh, um, you know, they, they don't know that. They don't know that between 10 and 14 million Africans were enslaved by the Arab world starting in the mm -hmm. 7th or 8th century. Um, they don't know that there were European slaves captured by North African pirates. They don't know that Korea has had an incredibly long and robust history of slavery. They don't know that many countries in the Middle East didn't abolish slavery until the 1960s. That is correct, the 1960s, not the 1860s. Mm -hmm. uh, I could go on and on. Slavery was one of the worst scourges in the world, and sadly there are still many... Uh, uh, still much slave trafficking in the world today, which also doesn't quite get enough attention. But to the fact that people leave American schools genuinely believing that America, or even the Western Hemisphere, was somehow unique in this scourge, is, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a crime against our students, and it causes them to view you, America as uniquely evil. The truth of the matter is that the whole world, practically the whole world, unfortunately, and in a very ugly way, was fine with slavery in pre-modern times. And then countries began one by one, slowly abolishing it, starting around, around the 1600s. So you can criticize America for not being the first in that trend, but it, wasn't, it was nowhere close to the last also. And the whole world really, uh, uh, we should be very grateful, we should all be very grateful to live in modern times when our morals and ethics have evolved past the barbarism of ancient history. But we should also be educated enough to know that America was hardly unique in, uh, in its sins. Yeah, that kind of American exceptionalism that, that, that posits America as uniquely um, evil um, and looks at matters through a presentist lens also in inevitably kind of is a form of narcissism that still um, makes Americans the primary actors of human reality. It, 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 it's, it functions in that way kind of like white supremacy does too. Even in being in, in, in positing that you're the worst or the most evil, you still give yourself, you know, the primary role in the human drama. Yeah, that might be it. You know, tr truthfully, I don't exactly know where it comes from, but uh, most countries in the world and most people, most nations, are basically uninterested in the sins of their ancestors. I remember one time I was at dinner, I tell this story in the book, I was at dinner with some friends from West Africa, born and raised there, mm -hmm. and I was curious, how is it that they learned about slavery? How was it taught in their schools growing up? And they said to me, yeah, yeah, we, we learned the truth. We learned that there was slavery in West Africa, 
African tribes capturing and enslaving other African tribes and then selling them to Europeans. But we didn't feel any guilt about this. We didn't feel this had anything to do with you know, our individual selves as moral beings. How could we be held responsible for things we had nothing to do with, for actions made by our grandfathers and great-great-grandfathers? Most humans worldwide have that attitude towards the sins uh, of their past. The only exception I know of are essentially you know, Europeans and, and European offshoot societies like America, Canada, Australia, where people have quite a bit of guilt, at least uh, on the liberal side of the spectrum. People have quite a bit of guilt for the for actions that occurred 200 years ago. That's a very interesting sociological fact. Now, what you can't say, uh, you can say that that's the right attitude. If you want to say that's the right attitude and hold the whole world to that standard, that would at least be a consistent uh, position. Right. But what you can't say is that Americans have exceptionally little interest in historical sins. That doesn't make sense because America actually has much more interest in its, the sins of its past than the vast majority of, of, of nations on Earth. Um, you catalog a litany of what you call race-related fallacies, uh, the disparity fallacy, the myth of undoing the past, the myth of no progress, the myth of inherited trauma, the myth of superior knowledge, the racial ad hominem. Can you walk us through some of, uh, some of these uh, fallacies and how they operate? Yeah, well, I, I, I think one is um, myth of inherited trauma. This is the idea that because, let's, let's say, put it in the first person, in my case, my ancestors were slaves, that therefore their trauma has been passed down to me almost genetically. So, so, some people mean this just as a metaphor for how um, you know, parents in dire straits kind of can, can pass on their stress to their children simply in the way that they parent. And in that case, you may be talking and just, in that case, you're just talking about what it is to grow up in a chaotic household, which is uh, no easy feat, of course. But if you really mean, and some people do, that the trauma your ancestors experienced passed down to you, sometimes people use epigenetics, which is a burgeoning field in biology to justify this. Well then, to my last point, almost the whole world going to have an enormous amount of inherited trauma, not just people of color. Um, you know, anyone who is descended from Russian serfs or from um, uh, refugees of the famine in Ireland or the famine in China and India is going to have inherited trauma. And this is going to be something that essentially the, the whole human race Aaron. Um, but, you know, some people have construed this as the idea that, you know, somehow white people would have no inherited trauma in this theory and blacks and Hispanics would. But again, this is, this is again, a symptom of the ignorance and poverty of American education, simply the fact that people, people somehow believe that trauma has been, uh, 
to, to the black American experience. Uh, this is, this I think leads to a very uh, a toxic thinking pattern uh, among uh, Americans of color and a kind of dwelling in, dwelling and, and perpetuation of psychological trauma rather than accepting that pretty much uh, up until very recently, most of the world was a, a terrible place. Uh, poverty abounded, injustice abounded, and we have made, we've taken steps bit by bit to get better as a society. We'll never get perfect, but hopefully we can keep getting a bit better. But on the way there, we should not be siloing ourselves into uh, a narrative where, where you know, our, our people are permanently crippled somehow by the past. And this is what the myth of inherited trauma, to take one example, uh, really perpetuates. Yeah, and the, the disparity fallacy is also really fascinating. And you've written about that for some years now. Um, and you go into quite a lot of detail with research on various groups. Could you expand on that too? Yeah, so many people and many people in academia believe that um, anytime there is a disparity in income, wealth, incarceration, et cetera, uh, that that disparity must be due to discrimination, whether systemic or individual. The problem with that theory is when you actually study the whole landscape of disparities, not just between different races in America, but also within races, you find it's just not possible that the vast majority of these disparities could be due to racism. There are too many disparities, large ones, between groups of the same race. You'll have two groups of the same race. One will be at the very top of the income spectrum. One will be at the very bottom. Yet um, outsiders actually couldn't tell them apart, and therefore couldn't discriminate between them. So in my book, I make the point that disparities are a lot like tumors. It's a very scary word, but the majority of them are benign, which is to say, not caused by racism or discrimination. So if there's one thing that people could learn, it's that um, in a multicultural society where you have different groups of different cultural backgrounds, um, you are going to see a lot of disparities. But most of those disparities are benign rather than malignant. What is also the purpose? Uh, can you steal a man the, the rationale for fixating on disparities? as opposed to simply doing the hard work of, I guess, um, bringing individuals and, and perhaps communities up to speed, but why fixating on the, on the injustice of perceived disparity? Yeah, so I, look, I do think we should care to ameliorate disparities, make disparities smaller, because um, at the end of the day, whatever disparities are caused by, they're an ongoing source of friction between communities. One community sees another community with much more. Regardless of what it's caused by, it's going to cause, at least potentially, always a potential source of friction and tension and resentment between groups. So we absolutely do want to address disparities, the disparities that are caused by, by lack of education and poverty and so forth. But, you know, frankly, if we, could make, if we could wave a magic wand and get rid of all disparities, 
I would be for that. But in, 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 the, in the real world, where the means by which we get somewhere matter just as much as the ends themselves, we have to keep a few things in mind. One is that we're never going to get rid of all disparity. So expectations should be set. Two, we should realize there are some rules we shouldn't violate in, order, in our effort to close racial gaps. We should not discriminate against individuals on the basis of their race. We should instead focus on addressing poverty uh, on, on targeted pre-K and K through 12 improvements for poor Americans, which will disproportionately benefit black Americans. And we should stop focusing so much on all of these policies that kick in after 18 years old, like affirmative action and EI. Neither of these, though they occupy a lot of the national media conversation, these are all things that apply to an individual, essentially college and after. Whereas we know the time you can have the biggest impact on, on uh, the life of a, of a child that comes from disadvantage between zero and 18. So we need to focus on evidence-backed ways to improve schooling and environments for kids, for poor kids, between the ages of zero and 18. And if we do that, I do think many of these disparities will begin to shrink. And, and if we do it that way, then we'll have done it without racially discriminating against anyone. And we'll, we'll have done it in a way that is more consistent with a long-run uh, cooling of race relations. So it's not that I don't care about disparities. Just I want to set expectations and say that all societies will always have some disparities, and most of them are benign. And to say that in addressing racial disparities between blacks and whites, whites and Hispanics, and so forth, there are certain rules that we shouldn't violate because the cure will be worse than the disease. One of the most self-defeating myths is, certainly in my view, is the myth of no progress. Uh, many anti-racists and progressive Americans believe or profess to believe that white supremacy is in fact increasing. Uh, in a 2020 interview with Goop, uh, Robin D'Angelo even claimed Quote, in many ways, we're in the 60s in terms of the permission that's been given to explicitly express racism. Uh, but you argue that white supremacy is measurably declining. Yeah, Robin D'Angelo is wrong about that. Um, so, I mean, there are many ways that you can see white supremacy has, has declined precipitously. One is just, you know, all of the poll results. If you go back to 1960, almost all white Americans at that time would have said, I don't want my kid marrying a black person. Um, now those numbers are below 10%, often below 5%. Uh, if, you look at, if you look at the fact that, for example, in the early 20th century, a huge percentage, there's research on this, a huge percentage of uh, black people that could get away with it because they were light-skinned enough would simply choose to pass as white at some point because living as a black person at that time so constrained your opportunities. I, now, in, in our age, I've never heard of a light-skinned black person that tried to pass as white because living as a black person was too difficult. Uh, that, that alone is a massive indicator of how far the country has come. Um, not to mention 
the fact that we did elect a two-term black president, which most people even in 2006 and 7 didn't think was possible because the country was too racist. And yet it happened, which certainly proved some level of progress that couldn't have happened in 1980. And so um, I, th I think we've clearly come a, a huge way. There's really no level of office at this point that a black person hasn't held. Uh, there are black CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, and people don't even experience that as, as, as exceptional or strange at this point. Um, and you turn on TV and you see black people for decades now occupying every single position of authority and respect you could possibly uh, imagine. And again, it doesn't even strike the eye as weird anymore which is the ultimate indicator of normalization progress. And so I, I think there are people that really want to cling to the problems of the past and admit that certain victories have actually been achieved. Uh, and that's an unfortunate thing. But for the rest of us, we ought to acknowledge and give credit where credit is due to the great civil rights activists of the past for having transformed this country. and um, and the ground that has been won. Not only um, are there no instances I can think of of, of passing, um, there are high profile cases of, of whites who are actually passing as black and people of color. Is is there not some type of um, some type of power in the victim posture or in refusing to relinquish uh, um, um, the wound? that uh, is, is actually a kind of reversal going on as well. Absolutely. I think, as you said, the only high-profile case passing in my lifetime has been Rachel Dolezal, which was not a black person trying to live as a white person. It was a white person trying to live as a black person. Um, now, and not only that, I've, I frankly notice in, in my lifetime that just uh, you know, a, a lot of biracial people would prefer to lean into the black aspect of their identity mm -hmm. because it's no longer a detriment and it could even be a plus in many. So how do we understand all this? I know it's, 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 it's like uh, for people of a certain generation, it must feel like whiplash to have been born in a country that was deeply racist against black people and over the course of 50, 60 years actually Truly transformed to a degree where um, a critical mass of people really want to celebrate black success and, and, and foster it and even want to bend standards to give black people a leg up in certain cases. It must feel like whiplash to have grown up in one in the same country and see it transformed to this degree. That's not to say that racism doesn't exist. I think racism is always going to exist because uh, frankly, because you know, humans are, are fallen creatures and some amongst us will always want to indulge in the kind of vile bigotry which says that black people are lesser beings. Um, and there's no way to eradicate all of that. But we have really cleared, we've, we've cleared out of um, mainstream power the, the, the white supremacy of old. And Instead, in, in institutions, we do have what I call neo-racism, which is almost the opposite impulse. It's 
an impulse which says uh, that white people are inherently racist and they're on the way out and uh, it's only a matter of time before you know white America simply gets um, you know white Americans time is over essentially and kind of celebrates that mm -hmm. with, with a little bit of a nasty jeer behind it. Uh, this is How not Oh, I'm this sorry. Is not, th yeah, this is this is not a healthy way to address your fellow countrymen, even if you have those feelings. How does uh, affirmative action and the recent Supreme Court rulings uh, um, enter into that picture of um, uh, of relinquishing the past and um, and finding a way that we can move forward for for every American? Yeah. So the recent Supreme Court ruling, uh, which ruled affirmative action uh, um, unconstitutional. Again, I think this is, a, this is a decision that struck people as, uh, some people as a huge step back, but I don't think so. I think this is, this is a step forward. It's an uncomfortable thing to, for many people to discuss, but affirmative action based upon race was not meant to last forever. It was, it was meant as kind of training wheels to eventually be ditched on the path to a, uh, a, a more colorblind society. Now, does this mean we can't use policy to address disadvantage? No. But it does mean we should do so on the basis of socioeconomic class, not on the basis of race. It's not sustainable for a country like America that invites everyone to its shores the whole world, and then says, once you get here, you may be discriminated against if you apply to Harvard. You may be rejected because you're Asian. In, in a country that prides itself on judging people as individuals. This is a contradiction that had to be reconciled at that point, at some point. And uh, I think it was frankly overdue, if anything. So, uh, yeah. It's uncomfortable for, for people, I think, in particular, uh, people who, who at least superficially benefit from affirmative action, people that are black, people that are Hispanic, to, to envision what uh, applying to college or applying to jobs would be like without affirmative action because it, advant it, it acts, plays to our advantage. But if we are being completely honest, is it not better that such policies operate on the basis of socioeconomic class rather than race. I would say. Can, can you give us some closing thoughts on what we could do to reclaim the term anti-racism? Yeah, well, I think we have to return to the definition of racism that was conceived of by civil rights leaders. Martin Luther King said that racism is doctrine of and genital inferiority of a people. That's the kind of racism that civil rights movement fought and I think successfully uh, destroyed, uh, at least the bulk of it. So if we return to that racism, that definition of racism, which can be applied and is applied to, to every group of people in different measure, um, we have to stand against that kind of racism, whoever it's directed towards. 
you have to stand against it when it comes out of the mouth of you know, some, some idiot calling black people the N-word. And we have to stand against it when it comes out of the mouth of some Ivy League professor talking about how, how white people are all evil. We have to stand equally against all of this stuff as a signal to our, um, you know, our fellow Americans that we will, we will just not tolerate anybody denigrating whole races of people uh, rather than judging people as individuals. This is something that we have to continually teach, continually enshrine. It was the ethos of the civil rights movement. And uh, I think we high time that we restore it as our North Star when we're talking and thinking about the issue of race, racism, and racial inequality. Coleman, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, thank you so much. Thank you, Thomas. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you are interested in podcasts about nonfiction books, listen to C-SPAN's Book Notes Plus podcast for interviews with authors and historians hosted by Brian Lamb.